Well, good evening. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you once again in the name of Jesus. I want to thank you all for having me, um, that we've had this time together. It's been a real blessing to, to me and to my wife to be here. Um, I'll tell you this now rather than at the close because, you know, a sermon needs to have a dramatic finish and it kind of takes away from it. Uh, but I'm very glad to be here. Um, it's almost like a, uh, it's a little bit of an exam to come here and preach. Um, for all these people who volunteered to be in an outreach church, that's a, a challenge. Uh, Brother Ben is here and Brother John, who were my mentors into the church among the many. Uh, ben could almost be my father in the faith. And Brother Philip, you know, Brother Philip and I have had a, they've just become very close, I think. You know, we both came into the church from opposite directions. And yet we met in about the same place. I don't know if maybe we've taken a little step past each other and then kind of come back and we keep trying to get into that same place, but we know we're in the right place. And it's just, we can talk together after a meeting, we'll just be there forever if, we don't, if our wives don't call and say, hey, are y'all coming home or what? <laughs> um, so I don't know how it is for you all having someone different in the pulpit. You know, you get used to your own ministers. You like the, the cadence, the rhythm. You know the things that they, the, they preach. You know where their attitudes are. You know that they're with you and that they love you. I hope you still feel that love when someone else is, is up here. Uh, turn with me to John 15. And we'll go down to verse 7. Thank you. And Jesus says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life, for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So this is our last night of relating to people from non-Mennonite background, and our topic tonight is, is making a difference. Well, so what does that mean? How do we, how do we make a difference? Well, it sounds kind of like um, outreach, doesn't it? So, so tonight I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to an outreach church about outreach. Maybe that's fair. Bethesda was an outreach church when it was planted. And I would have to say Bethesda has done some outreach. I know five people that they reached out to and brought into the community. Um, we have another young lady who came and attended Bible school. Um, her family, uh, it's just a worldly disaster. And she came to Bible school and, and she looked around and she saw what she wanted. And she stayed. High school girl made a decision to join the church, to stay in the church. And she's grown now. So... We do outreach. 
But you all have made a particular decision to come here and be planted, to leave your home church communities where it's pretty cozy, right? You like to stay with your family and, and where you've been all these years. Well, how do we make a difference? You know, we've already talked about a few things, haven't we? You know, we talked about having relationship with people. And we talked about taking time to get to know people, to show them love, show them Christ's love and, and your love. We talked about the things that we have to offer as a church, sound doctrine, good teaching, practical applications of God's word. You know, we don't just tell people walk with Christ. We show them a way. We show them the steps. Well, so how do we, how do we put all that into practice? How does, how does this outreach thing work? Does it work? Well, like I said, here I am. It does work. And, you know, sometimes it's not as much the people you go out and bring in, but people just come. Right? You're planted here. People are going to see this church and see the lights on again. And, well, what's going on in there? Maybe I'll go in and check it out. And outreach can start then to those people. The hardest thing is really deciding how we're going to do outreach together as a church. How do we make that happen as a church community? You know, each and every individual, each and every one of you is doing outreach every day, aren't you? You know, the, the first step is simply talking to people and relating to them and inviting them to church. Well, why do you invite them to church? I, you know, you're working with them. You're making this personal relationship. But two are better than one. Right? Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. So when one person is struggling with someone, maybe the other one can make a connection. When one person has kind of reached the limit of where they can take a relationship, another person can carry it forward. And the person is getting twice as much love. They're seeing twice as much Christ. Well, now we come in here and, was it 53? They can have 53 times as much Christ when they come through the door and come into the church. So we want to work together to do that. So what, what else can we do? Well, we need to be creative. You know, we need to know the neighborhood around us and the people around us. And we need to be brave and we need to be bold. You know, brothers and sisters are going to come up with ideas. They're going to say, well, we should do this. We, we should put a sign on a table out by the road and sit by it. We should have a coffee shop. We should open a bookstore. I don't know. But people are going to come up with ideas. And when they raise those ideas, does our attitude towards them then show that we love and trust the Lord? Are we Zacharias or are we Mary? When God calls, do we say, that can't be. Or do we ask, how can that be? Philip Wanger told us a story about a friend or a fellow that came and stayed in his uh, tenant house. He's a friend now. And he had a church in Atlanta. And Philip asked him, well, how did that, how'd that go? How did that come to be? How did you come to be, to be ordained to minister? And he said, you know, he was in a conservative church and he was just kind of fed up with the young people. And he just thought their, their faith just wasn't very deep. And you know, they just really hadn't been really challenged. And he just felt like if anybody, if they got any real challenge, that they would just fall apart. And another brother said, well, why don't you take them out on a street ministry? Take them down to the worst part of town in Atlanta, where the worst crime is and all the dregs of society are, all the people that have no hope are. Take them down there on the street to give out tracts and see how they do. And he said, all right. And he took them. And, well, what do you know? They did great. <laughs> they handed out tracts. They talked to people. They interacted with people. They saw the need, and they became hungry to share that need. They became lit on fire. And so they started making this trip on a regular basis. And over the time, he did this over several years, and during the time he actually married one of the women, who came with him on this mission field to this place. And he decided what was going to be our next step. And he bought a building in that same area, in the worst part 
of Atlanta. Uh, if you don't go to a city, maybe you don't know what it means to be in the worst part of town. Um, it's not like walking down the street in Harrisonburg where you feel safe and you just see maybe people you know and you want to wave at. You see people lying drunk by the side of the road. You see prostitutes plying their trade. You see drug deals going down. It's not a place that makes you feel safe and comfortable. And they bought a building there and moved in. And they're going to make it a church. And so they set up the church and nobody came. And they thought, what are we going to do? And so finally he said, well, let's, what's happening in the town around us? Well, all night long, everyone is out doing their evil deeds, living this life. And they're not going home until most people, most of us would be going to church in the morning or going on our way to work. And he thought, what if we had breakfast? And so they set up a kitchen, they set up tables, and they opened the church for breakfast every day. And the cost of getting breakfast was you had to go and sit in a Bible study. And first thing you know, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the drunks, the people with no homes, they started coming in for breakfast. And they were willing to stay for the Bible study. It must have been a good breakfast. So people stayed for the Bible study. And one woman in particular, she'd been a prostitute on the streets for years. Now she's a member of the church. She's off the streets. She has a real job. She has a place to live. Because she came and she heard the word of Christ. And then there are others. It's a victory. What if I told you that to make a difference in this community, that's what you had to do? That this church had to be open either every morning or every night or every day at noon. Something had to be here for these people to come to. A coffee shop, a breakfast, a dinner, a lunch. I don't know. But what if you had to be here every day to make that happen? What would you say? Would you say, well, that won't work? But we can't do that. We, we, don't, we work during the day, right? We, we're not paid to be ministry. I have to, feed the, I have to feed the cows. I have to, you know, whatever it is. Is that what you'd say? We can't do that. Or would you say, how do we do that? How are we going to do that? If that's what we need to do, then how are we going to do it? Yeah, the spirit behind that answer, that's the answer to whether or not we can do anything. Whether or not we can make a difference for Christ. As long as our first reply is, no, we can't do that. We're not going to make a difference for Christ. When we start asking, well, can we do that? And how can we do that? That's when we're going to make a difference. But you're creative, motivated people. I don't have to tell you this. right? That's why you're here. Outreach is why you're here. It's going to happen. People will come in to see what you're all about. Like I said, they'll see the lights are on. And they'll start popping by. Are you ready? What if next Sunday, 15 Harleys rolled into the parking lot and 30 men and women got off of them, all dressed in leather and studs and tattoos and spiky hair or whatever, whatever makes you scared in the night. And they come in here and they fill those back benches or they fill up this room over here. And maybe they bring their beer bottles or who knows what, and they just come in just for fun. And poor Philip standing up here with his notes. What do I say? Welcome. Right? Well, we're, we're glad you're here. What do I preach? And all of a sudden, Philip's notes just go blank. And the Spirit comes. And he preaches a sermon worthy of Peter. Now, I know you do that every Sunday, Philip. But he preaches a sermon worthy of Peter. And every one of those 30 rough 
people are saved. And they want to join the church. And they're going to stay. They're going to be here every Sunday. What are you going to do now? You've got a lot of work ahead of you. Philip told me he's relating to a, a Muslim man. And it's difficult. It's tough going. What if he comes to church and wants to be a member of the church, if he wants to learn about Christ? What if some frat boys from the college who've been raised atheists and don't know anything about Jesus come and hear the word and suddenly they want to be Christians and they want to be Christians here. They want to be Mennonites. What are you going to do? How are you going to help these people or anyone change their lives for Christ? Well, you're going to have to go in for the long haul. You're going to have to practice discipleship. Well, so what's discipleship? Well, first of all, what or who is, is a disciple? You're turning with me to Matthew 10. And we'll start right at verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So we have the twelve. Twelve disciples who Jesus taught directly. They learned the word, the kingdom, directly from Christ. Then they received a command. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus told them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how version-centric you are. I kind of roll through different translations as I preach. This is the New King James. Um, interestingly, the King James here says all nations. It doesn't say, um, or it says, well, I lost my note. Anyway, it says something a little bit different. <laughs> But here in the New King James, make disciples of all nations. So those disciples, those made of all the nations, who's that? That's us. So what does a disciple do? A disciple follows his teacher, often literally following him around, as the apostles followed Jesus, to learn and become like their master. Now, Paul puts it pretty succinctly in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That's a bold statement of faith. Paul followed Christ. He presented an accurate image of Christ in both his teachings and in his life. You know, the Corinthians could be confident that Paul was teaching them to be like Christ. So our goal as well is to follow Jesus closely enough that anyone who follows us can know that they're following Christ. Right? Not like the children this morning where we went away from Christ and then came back and then went away. No. People should know that we're leading them directly to Christ. So that's who disciples are. What about being a disciple then? What does that mean? What are some qualities of disciples? Well, disciples are willing to learn. Okay, in Luke 8, 9, says, And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? Have you ever been in a class or in a conversation with someone and someone said something and you just plain didn't get it? But they were real confident in what they were saying. And it seems like everybody else in the class understands. Kind of makes you feel stupid, doesn't it? And what happens a lot of times is, well, we don't ask. Because it's embarrassing. I was supposed to get it. 
is obviously crystal clear to everybody else. Now, it might be that everybody else is thinking the same thing you are. And maybe usually that's the way it is. But the, you know, on several occasions, the disciples risked making Jesus angry at them. He got angry at them because of some of the questions they asked. Don't you understand? This is, this is basic stuff, and you still don't get it. But they still asked. You know, when people are teaching, they like to say, oh, there are no stupid questions. But there are, aren't there? You know, we, we know if you just weren't paying attention, well, then that's a stupid question because you should have been paying attention. Or if you were you know, wandering off somewhere else, or if you just, yeah, there are stupid questions. And it's embarrassing to ask them. But if you're lost, if you're not following along with what's going on, you have to ask. Two plus two is what again? You just need to know. And the disciples were willing to ask. How often do we have to ask questions like that just because we weren't paying attention? But we have to be willing to endure that embarrassment to learn. Well, and what should we already know? And what should we have to ask Jesus to explain to us? Now, in Luke 11, 1 says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Shouldn't they have known how to pray? They didn't. And they asked. Luke 17, 5 says, And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Wasn't that what Jesus was doing you know, every day with them, was trying to build up their faith? Is that a valid question? But if they felt like they needed their faith increased, they needed to ask. You know, Lord, build me up. Help me out here. Being willing to learn means overcoming our pride and admitting that we don't know. A disciple is willing to obey. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In John 14, 15, which I probably quoted 17 times this weekend, says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. So how do we know the truth? We continue in God's Word. We hold fast to it. We live it. We refuse to be moved from it. More clearly, if we love Jesus, we keep His commandments. We follow His teachings, and we tell the Gospel. The catch for both of these things is we have to know His Word and His commandments. You know, all around us, we have a very shallow teaching of the Scripture. People avoid parts that are controversial, parts that other people don't want to hear. That doesn't bring people into the church to be told they can't do this or shouldn't do that, right? So we just kind of gloss over those things. But then people lose that opportunity to show their love for Christ by obeying Him. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians, we can't obey what we don't know. And Paul praises the Corinthians for keeping the ordinances. He says in 11.2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you, or just as I delivered them to you. To be disciples of Christ, we have to study and know His Word. There's no following Christ without reading the Scripture. So, I did a Bible study survey in our church, and, and that's what that was all about. How much are you studying the Bible? What kind of help do you want in studying the Bible? What is your church doing for you studying the Bible? That's, that's what that was all about. The Bible study is foundational to discipleship. We can't follow Jesus if we can't see where He's going. We have to study the Word. A disciple loves. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if you have love one to another. Disciples love other disciples. Yes, we're to love the Lord with all our heart. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the love shared between disciples keeps us connected to Christ. John 15, 9 and 10 says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves us. We love each other. In that way, God's love connects us all to him. We have this unending, unbroken chain of love across all of our relationships. Obedience is the evidence of love. When your children obey you, don't you think that means they love you? But it sure helps. It helps you love them back anyway, doesn't it? There is no love without obedience. A disciple glorifies. John 15, 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So ye shall be my disciples. So shall ye be my disciples. A disciple brings glory to the Father. Well, what does that mean? Well, to glorify generally means to worship, to praise, to adore, to revere, to exalt, to bless. We tell everybody how great God is. As disciples, we praise God and give him thanks for all that he does for us. Glory can mean renown, fame, prestige, honor. Our actions for God add to his honor and prestige. People can honor God because of the good things that you do. Glory also means beauty, splendor, magnificence. Did you ever think that as a jewel in God's crown, you add to his beauty? Every disciple increases God's splendor. So those are a few of the things on the being side of, of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. On the other side of discipleship, we talk about it as, as a verb, as a doing, discipling. So we have all these new people in the church and they need to be discipled. They need to be brought along into the church. And we need to disciple one another. We always need to be growing closer and closer to Christ. If we can't disciple each other, if we can't take care of each other, how can we take care of someone who comes into the church who has no foundation, who needs to be built up from the ground up? The word disciple literally means learner. In the scriptures, it's used 269 times but only as a noun. The first followers of Jesus were called disciples, and he commanded them to make disciples of others. Now, over the years, Christians started to use disciple as a verb. To help another believer grow in faith and obedience means to disciple them. Paul gives us a summary of the discipling process in Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians 1. And we'll go down to verse 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Making disciples. The first duty of every disciple is to proclaim Jesus and the gospel. And this is the heart of discipling. Without the gospel, we have nothing to teach. As Jesus sent out the twelve, so are we sent. And this simple plan spread the faith throughout the entire known world, in less than one man's lifetime. And think about that. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television. They didn't have cars. They really didn't even have horse and buggies. In Roman times, you walked. And they spread the word, the gospel, all through Rome, through Italy, all through Southern Europe, into Spain, over into Asia, down through Jerusalem, across to Alexandria, the entire known world, in less than a man's lifetime. That's a lot. 
That's a lot of preaching. Him we proclaim. You know, this is, this is incredible news. God has revealed the mystery of Christ to us. And Christ is present with us to everyone, the lost and the saved. They can see Christ because He is with us. The good news is what brings others to be Jesus' disciples. Well, so then what? What's discipling? What do we do after they are come? And why do we continue to preach to the saved what they already know? I'm telling you what you already know, aren't I? So why? Why are we doing that? Well, because both babes in Christ and old men need to continue to grow and be encouraged. Jesus didn't say, teach them the gospel and then leave them to fend for themselves. Right? He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You know, discipling really isn't used as an English verb outside the church anymore. Really, not at all. To teach, to train, or to mentor would be the modern usage. You wouldn't say to disciple. So being a mentor to someone, though, it's more than just teaching. It's helping the person to grow by coming alongside of them in study, in friendship, and in open communication. Again, it's spending that time and building relationship, showing them that you really care about them. Discipling happens in the context of a relationship. And it can only happen because as disciples, we share Christ's love for one another. So how do we do this? And what are, what are the steps in, in discipling? Well, first of all, know that you're equipped for this task. Yeah, the mysteries of the faith are made manifest, made clear to you. You have the information you need to encourage and mentor other believers. Isaiah 54 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Know how to sustain the weary one with a word. What a promise. How many times have you needed that knowledge? How many times have you needed that word to say to someone who was tired, who was worn out, who was hurting, who was weeping? How many times have you needed that? God promises you that. It's coming from His Word, from His teaching. You have the skill, the needs, the words that people need. Each and every day, God will prepare you to listen to and to teach and to comfort His disciples. We have to teach. Colossians 1.28 says, Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. What does that all mean? It's kind of hard to parse out, isn't it? Well, the Amplified Bible, it's kind of a Bible with the commentary in the lines. Ben introduced it to me. And it has that as we proclaim him, warning and instructing everyone in all wisdom, that is, with comprehensive insight into the word and purposes of God, so that we may present every person complete in Christ, mature, fully trained, and perfect in Him, in the anointed. So we always teach prayerfully, asking God for insight, not relying on our own knowledge, so that everyone in the church will be ready to go home to Christ. Put that way, that sounds pretty daunting, doesn't it? Do, do I want to mentor someone if I'm going to be held responsible for them becoming perfect in Christ? If I'm a teacher to someone, am I responsible for them making it to heaven? Do I want to take that on? Do I know how? Well, you do know how. Turn over to Titus 2.
And we'll start at verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say to you. You know how to teach because you know how a Christian is supposed to live. Your own walk is your first lesson to your brothers and sisters. We, we like to say our life is our witness. Well, it's very true. That is the first lesson. All these things are what they should see in us. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We know what to teach. Matthew 28, 20 says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, so what are these all things? In 2 Timothy 2, 2, it says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And it brings us back around to 1 Corinthians again. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. All things that Jesus has commanded to us are in the Scriptures. We've been faithfully delivered these commands by Moses, by the prophets, by the apostles. We, we know what the all things are. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So remember back there again to Colossians 1.28, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. How do we make each other perfect? We study the Scriptures together. Now, I can't say what Paul is telling Timothy here, that I've known the Scriptures from a child. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I started studying the Scriptures in high school and in college. And I'll never be a chapter and verse guy, as some people like to say. I know one time we were in Sunday school and Ben said, oh, I've never really been a chapter and verse guy. And then he went on to quote chapter and verse about six times during that Sunday school lesson. As we study, we learn, we memorize. Memorizing Scripture is, is very incredibly important. If you've ever read the... Um, I can't think of it now. Um, the Chinese man. The... No. Um, the heavenly man. Thank you. I'm not doing well with this Alzheimer's thing. We're not getting along. <laughs> if you've ever read The Heavenly Man, he didn't have a Bible. And he wanted a Bible. He knew the Lord, but he didn't have a Bible. And God delivered him a Bible. And he took this Bible and he sat down and he memorized the Gospel of Matthew. He just sat down and memorized the Gospel of Matthew. And then one day he was on the street and a man came up to him and said, you're supposed to come and preach to us today. And he was like, I just got a Bible. <laughs> but he went. He went with them. And they went to the house church. And they sat him up in front of the church. And they all sat down and they were waiting for him to preach. And he didn't know what to say. And he recited the Gospel of Matthew. 
If you've memorized Scripture, you'll never want for something to say when people ask you about Christ. So, how do we make each other perfect? We study the Scripture together. We cannot be made perfect, completely trained disciples of Christ, without the Scripture. Now, I'm not saying you have to have it all memorized, but you have to know the sense of it. You have to have read through it. Um, one thing I can't recommend enough is a daily reading Bible. It'll take you through the Bible. In, in a, I have one. It's chronological, and it's just a lot of fun to read everything in chronological order. It's hard to read the whole Bible just reading a book at a time because things are happening all at once, and they're all meshed together. Um, 15 minutes a day, and you're through the Bible in a year. So theoretically, it takes... What did I read? It takes like 72 hours to read the entire New Testament and I think a week to read the whole Bible if you just sat down and read straight through. So you can do it. And you can have the entire Scripture at your fingertips. So we need to take time to study the Bible alone with the Spirit, to just spend that time with Christ. We need to study it together with our families so that we have it together with our wives and with our children and with our parents. And we have to study it together with our fellow disciples. Now, why is it important to study with others? Why can't we just read it and figure it out for ourselves? Well, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, what's Peter telling us here? Primarily, he's assuring us that the prophecies of Christ weren't just made up by the prophets. All right? He and the other apostles didn't make up some prophecies to justify their newfound faith. He's assuring us these things, these prophecies are 2,000, 1,000 years old, and they were made through God. But he's also telling us that we don't just get to make up what the Scripture means. God's Word is clear. The clear reading of Scripture is the meaning of Scripture. By studying it both alone and in groups, we protect each other from being deceived, or as Peter says elsewhere, from resting the Scripture to our destruction. Sometimes we just want it to say what we want it to say. I have that problem. I'll sit down to write a sermon and I'll have a verse in mind, and I just know this is the verse that's going to make this sermon, and then I'll start reading it, and I'll read it in context, and I'll read around it, and oh, that didn't say what I thought it said. And so now it's either do I need another verse, or do I need another sermon? But that's why we need to study the Bible together, so we can pull those things out, and we can support each other as we learn. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. This applies equally to our study as it does to our character. As we read and teach and talk through the Bible together, we build our understanding, you know, that comprehensive insight into the word and purposes of God that we talked about a little earlier. We also build love and understanding for each other. You know, Martin Luther hated having Anabaptists around his church. And he, he wrote about it, he said he did. And the reason he didn't like them being in church was because they thought they had sitzrecht. Now, what's sitzrecht? Sitzrecht is the right to sit at the table. So in the older church, we didn't have, you don't have this, right? You have a table where all the ministry sits. And it's not elevated like this. It's on the same level, right? Because my title isn't pastor or preacher or priest or father. It's brother, the same as yours. So that was important in the older church that we we're all on the same Level. Well, it was the same way in the Lutheran church in Germany. There was a table where the ministry sat. And the Anabaptists thought that they could speak up in church and argue with him about Scripture. They had the right to sit at the table with the ministry. Well, we wouldn't like that either, would we? <laughs> but we have a place for Sitzrecht. We have Sunday school. Sunday school is so important in our churches. Because it's the place where, instead of you just sitting here listening to what I'm telling you about the Scriptures, we can talk together 
and tease the scripture out and get our ideas out there and be told that's yes, you have it or no, that's not right at all. We need to go this way. And we tease these things out and talk them out because you are sitting at the table together there with everyone. And we study the Bible together. Sunday school is your sithrak. Don't not talk in Sunday school. So, and that also makes us love one another. We start to know what's in each other's head. We start to know where we are in our walk. What are the things that we understand or don't understand or struggle with? Because it comes out in that time together when we are able to talk together. We also have to sacrifice as disciples. You know, this whole thing looks like a lot of work, doesn't it? And it is. Investing in people is expensive. It takes time, emotion, dedication, and love. And none of those are things that we part with easily. You know, Paul describes discipling in Colossians 1.21 as, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working. You know, the ESV has toil and struggle for strive. You know, the Greek has in mind to grow weary, tired, and exhausted or to labor with wearisome effort. The word for struggle there, it struggles often used to describe the strenuous exertion that goes into an athletic competition or a fight, combat. Paul fought and labored to the point of exhaustion to present believers mature in Christ. Nothing less is expected of us. To make a difference in someone's life they have to see that you care, that you're invested in them, that you love him. You know, with our own faith, responsibilities for our families, cares of the world, well, where do we find that extra love for our fellow disciples? You know, that's kind of been a recurring theme this weekend, right? We have to love these people. We have to invest in them. Where does that come from? I can barely, I have, only have three children and I can barely keep up with them. How do I do this? How do I do this times 53 or 60? Well, we have to lean on Jesus. Colossians 1 29 again, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. The New American Standard has that for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. We don't disciple each other by our own power. Jesus gives us the power to help each other, just as he gives us power for everything he asks of us. When we disciple, when we teach, mentor, comfort, guide, advise, love, befriend our fellow disciples in Christ, his power works mightily within us. It's in reaching out to our brothers and sisters that we gain Christ's power. He works through us, and we can work more and more and more. What can't we do? So, are we doing this? Are we practicing discipleship? You know, we understand whose job this is, don't we? Discipleship isn't a ministry thing. It's a church thing. It's a membership thing. This is everyone's job. Everyone here has something to offer to someone else. And everyone here needs support from someone else. There are new members. People who just need to be, like I said, built from the ground up. There are our children who we need to be raising up and teaching the faith every day. There's our youth who are struggling with Ideas coming in from the world and people telling them, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live that way. We have to build them up. We have our young parents who are just trying to figure everything out with this, this little animal that came into their life. We have our elders who are looking at the end of life and wondering, have I done the things I need to do? And am I going to be able to go home? We need to be comforting and continuing to build them. There's our ministry. Believe me, your ministry needs your support and your prayers. 
and your discipleship every single day. I don't know it all. I have this little piece that I have to keep adding on to and stretching, and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Your prayers help it get thicker and deeper. We all need that word of comfort. We all need that disciple's ear, that time, and that investment. Is there another brother or sister in the church today whose walk is easier or stronger because of you? Is your walk easier or stronger because of another brother or sister in the church? Do you see a brother or sister in the church who seems to be struggling with something and you've been there? You can understand. Will you reach out to them? Do you see a brother or sister in the church who has victory in an area where you're hurting? Will you ask them for help? If those answers are yes, we're practicing discipleship. If those answers are no, then we have some work to do. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. God loved Jesus, Jesus loved us, and we love each other. The broken, unbroken chain of love through all our relationships. How much are we willing to invest in each other to build Christ's church? Do we have the heart for each other that Paul had for the Thessalonians? First Thessalonians 2.8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. So we're talking about people from non-Mennonite backgrounds and how to reach out to them. But it seems like all this stuff isn't about them, is it? It's about us. The, the responsibility for relationship is on us. When people come into our church, they're looking for something. And the first thing they're looking for is, how are you? Welcome to our church. A relationship and love. That's where it starts. If we're doing this for each other, if we're building up each other in the ways that we're taught, then it's just going to happen naturally for those who come into the church. Nobody had to make any special effort to welcome my wife and my children and I into the church. Everybody there loved each other. And the love just spilled over onto us. And the love of Christ was in that. And we stayed. That's the secret to reaching out to people from other backgrounds.